Father, we want to be humbled by your mercy. We want to be broken this morning by the grace of the gospel. We want the truths of the cross to permeate our stony and hard-hearted hearts. For, Lord, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But, Lord, often the message of the cross to those who are being saved has become dull and has become numb. Our hearts have just become stale towards the, the mercy and the blood of Christ. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for beginning to stir our affections with a reminder of those men and women that you have raised from the dead through the gospel. We thank you for Jamie's life that is a trophy, is a monument of the cross. Lord, she is a monument. Her life you have purchased with the money of the blood of Jesus. Lord, you have made her your own. And Lord, she stands before us to remind us of what the cross does, what the cross says. That there is infinite grace towards the wretched sinners. And there is a name that is sons and daughters of God. There's a new name, there are new clothes. There's a new a new heart, a new mind, new thinking, new way of living. A new thing is the living for. A new God. But all these things belong to those who become your sons and daughters. To becoming the brother and sister of Christ. God, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your mercy. We come to you now, Lord. We come to you in much weakness. I come to you in much fear. And much trembling. Praying, O Lord, that by your grace you would uphold your son and that Lord we would see him in all his beauty and all of his glory Lord we thank you for this special day in your name we pray Amen I ask you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3 where we'll be this morning as a 12 year old kid uh, I was not the greatest athlete, and I didn't watch a lot of sports, but I did watch, in 1988, I did watch the World Series with my dad and my brother, who loved baseball. And as very many of you know, it was 88 World Series, the Los Angeles Dodgers play the Oakland Athletics. The Dodgers were down 4-3 to three with two outs. It was the bottom of the ninth. The tying run was on first. People were waiting to see who would come up to bat. Kirk Gibson got the word that he would pinch hit. Now, this was somewhat surprising, considering that, first of all, he had violent stomach flu. And on top of that, in the league conference finals, he injured both of his knees pretty severely. So much so that he was limping, he was in physical therapy. In fact, as he was warming up in the batting cages, and sw- every time he swung, he fell down on his he fell down on his knees because his knees were so full of pain. And so it was incredible to watch as Kirk Gibson walks out to the batter's box, 
somewhat gimping. And he stands there in the box to face, then at that time, the greatest relief pitcher in Major League Baseball, Dennis Eckersley. After some pitches, after some foul balls, in fact, every time he would connect with the ball and send it fouling away, he would fall on the ground in pain of his knees. And it would be like, it would be agony to watch him try to get back up and on his feet and stand in the batter's box again. Foul ball after foul ball, and this, this, the time there seemed like it was two years. Well, finally, having been tipped off, Eckersley's famous slider, Gibson got a clean connection, and he launched the ball over the right field fence for a two-run homer to win the game. As you know, the Dodgers went on, perhaps motivated by Gibson's tenacity to win the World Series. I come to you this morning feeling in some ways as Kirk Gibson felt when he walked out to the batter's box at the bottom of the ninth, realizing that the whole game, the entire game, and the weight of the game rested upon his own shoulders. As you know, Resurrection Sunday is, if you will, it is the weightiest Sunday. It is the most important Sunday of all the Sundays in the year of the church. Perhaps that weight is because on this Sunday, it's one of two Sundays when unbelievers actually come to church to hear the gospel. It is because on this Sunday, they hear the second of the only two sermons they hear their whole lives. The nativity and the tomb. From the womb to the tomb. And there's a great weight for the preacher to strike a home run and preach the gospel Because all the believers have brought their unbelieving family and have brought their unbelieving friends in hopes that the preacher will hit a home run. Or maybe it's just the weight of preaching to believers who Sunday after Sunday, not just once, not just twice, not just three times a year, but Sunday after Sunday, hear the same message about Jesus Christ pierced for our transgressions and raised for our justification. And so again, Bottom of the ninth, down by a point, the preacher feels the weight to strike a home run. Those pressures, I will confess, are real. I feel all those weights, but that is not the greatest weight I feel. That is not the greatest pressure I feel, nor is that the greatest burden that I feel. All week long, I have studied the Word of God. I have studied about sin. I have studied about redemption and propitiation and justification and resurrection and salvation. And all along, the greatest opponent was not Dennis Eckersley. It was not unbelievers. It was not believers. It's my own hardened heart. It's my own numb conscience and my own dull soul to the power of the gospel. I feel like Kirk Gibson this morning with the weight and the need to preach a home run to my own heart. I know, perhaps as well as you do, what it's like to feel what Keith Green sang when he he sang these words. My eyes are dry. My faith is old. 
My heart is hard. My prayers are cold. And I know how I ought to be alive to you and dead to me. But what can be done for an old heart like mine? Soften it up with oil and wine. The oil is you, the spirit of your love. Please wash me anew with the wine of your blood. So friends, putting all encumbrances aside and the sins which so numb us to the gospel. Listen afresh to the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 23, where Paul declares, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, Because in the forbearance and the patience of God, he passed over the sins, all sins, previously committed against him. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. So that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Our petition this morning is God... We have forgotten how sinful sin is. And we have forgotten how wicked we are. If we are to see the mercy of the cross, remind us this morning, in blunt force, the heinousness of sin. Because we will remain cold and stale to the mercy of the cross until we can reckon the magnitude of our sin. The true meaning of sin has all but vanquished and been vanished in the church. And because of this, it has almost drowned the conscience of our nation as sin has been redefined through fanciful man-made ideas and terminology. A quick search comes up with numerous answers to the definition of sin. Sin is when you hurt someone else or when you make a mistake. Sin is breaking social rules. Some define sin as an act of breaking your own personal morals. Some would say as an individual, you determine what moral is. And you set the standard, however high or however low. And when you cross your own moral standards, you sin. Therefore, sin is defined as going against oneself. One person said, I think sin is something against your beliefs, but I do not think you should call anybody else's actions sin unless it's against their beliefs. In an article this week in U.S. News and World Report, a new survey posted which finds that 80% of U.S. adults believe in the existence of sin. But the definition of sin was something that is almost always considered wrong, particularly from a religious or moral perspective. In that same article, a young 34-year-old resident from Reno, Nevada, named Carson, said, quote, Most people still have a notion of sin, like bringing cheap wine to a party. 
Seriously, you know what sin is when you get a feeling in your gut that something's wrong. He went on, I would call myself an atheist now, but I think the Bible has a lot of good stories. And I do connect with the story of Easter, of redemption and rebirth. Because it tells me you are going to make mistakes and you will get another chance to do right in the future. That's Carson's and many others' definition of sin. It's a mistake. It's an error. But you get a second chance. But is that what sin is? Is that how the Bible defines and describes what sin is? And is that how the Bible defines and describes the consequences of sin? Namely, a second chance? This is the world's idea of sin. And it excludes the need for the cross. And this is why we cry aloud for God to teach us again what sin is. The world's definition of sin, it has crept into our hearts. It has crept into our church. And it has made us blind and it has made us numb to the cross. Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That term, all have sinned, is a general charge. The Greek term for sin means to miss the mark. It it means to go astray from the intended target. To miss the mark and to go astray from the intended target. But the second part of that verse tells us what the target is. And tells us what it is that we are missing. Namely, the glory of God. What did we fall short of? The glory of God, the majesty, the beauty, the target of the worth and the value of God. Now to understand this this morning, we go back to the very beginning of Scripture, back to the very beginning of the Bible. Where in Genesis chapter 1, we read the creation account of where God himself in his infinite power and omnipotence creates everything by merely speaking it into existence. Let there be light, and there was light. Let there be expanse separating the the stars, and let there be an expanse separating the skies, and there was an expanse. Let there be water. Let there be birds and teams of fish. And after all this, God says it is good. But there is one particular creature that God makes that is uniquely different and has a uniquely different pronouncement of all other creatures, and that is man. In Genesis 1.26, God says, Let us make man in our image. The word image means likeness. It has the implications of dominion and rule, which is clearly seen in Genesis 1, where God tells Adam to have dominion over the garden and over the earth, to subdue it, to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill it. He names the animals. He is in charge of them. He is in charge of the garden. We see it in his relationship with his wife, where he is charged to shepherd her and to care for her, to instruct her and to shepherd her. But the image of God and man is also seen in that man is a personal spiritual being. Like God, man has creative ability. He reasons and thinks, formulates plans and ideas. He relates to other beings and communicates complex ideas and emotions. 
thus man was made in what theologians call the Imago Dei, the image of God. Scriptures tell us that this is the highest creative act of God in Him making us in His image. Psalm 8, verses 3 through 8 declare, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. No other creature is declared to have been made in the Imago Dei. Now, I love animals. I, I love Animal Planet. I love BBC, the British Broadcasting Company's version of Planet Earth, right? Or the, uh, the oceans. And watching all these incredible animals do phenomenal and incredible things. Things which boggle my mind and blow me away. I'm blown away that there are birds who almost live their entire life in the air. Landing but for a few moments their entire life. I'm amazed that that whales will travel a million miles in their lifetime. Or that a salmon will leave and it will travel miles, sometimes hundreds of miles down the river, live in the ocean for years, and then swim hundreds of miles back up the river and go exactly to the place of its birth. I'm amazed that a chimp can learn sign language or that a pigeon will take a message I wrote to another person. That's incredible. But you know what? A chimp cannot do Shakespeare. You could put a robe on a chimp you can give him a sword, but he cannot perform Macbeth. Okay? You can give a pigeon a message to take to your wife, but a pigeon cannot write a love letter to another pigeon. Pigeons cannot relate and they cannot do the things, the things that men do. Because pigeons and chimps and elephants are not made in the image of God. A dog can eat prime rib, but he'll never be a chef at Lowry's. Man is the higher than all other creatures. Man is God's trophy to his creative power and intricate eye to detail. As the moon reflects the sun, so man was made to reflect God. The sun is a star. The moon is a planet. The moon is a stale, cold, lifeless rock. And yet, when it stands before the blazing glory of the sun... The intensity and the light and the heat of the sun reflects off the moon and shines even brightly upon this earth. Such is the way that God has made man. Though apart from the Imago Dei, he is but a dumb brute. Because of God's creative act in making him in the image of God, he is the moon that reflects the sun's glory. God related with man. He was pleased with man. He was pleased how Adam shepherded, loved, protected, and provided for his wife. He was pleased that they worked hard in the garden. He was pleased to walk and talk with them in the garden. 
He was pleased the way that man and woman did everything to the glory of God, ate to the glory of God, walked to the glory of God, prayed to the glory of God, loved and shared to the glory of God. But something happened in Genesis 3 that forever changed the way God related to man and the way man reflected God. In Genesis chapter 3, we read that Satan tempted Eve to disobey God by eating of the forbidden tree. But Satan's temptation was not simply with a piece of forbidden fruit. The heart of, of Satan's temptations was with the luring words, On the day you eat of it, what? You'll be like God. You'll be like God. Now, at that moment, what should have Eve said? She should have thought, and then she should have said, I already am. I already am like God. I was made in His image. He created me to reflect His glory. I'm not God. That's why I follow His rules. But I am like God, that I reflect in reason, and I can live Morally and righteously. And I can say no to your slanderous lie, Satan. But she didn't say that. Because Satan's temptation was great. And it was more slimy and slick than simply saying, you will be like God. It was ultimately saying, you can be God. You can rule. You can reign. You can be the determiner of truth. And you can be the determiner of morals. And you can be the determiner of what is right and what is wrong. And when pride and lust filled Adam and Eve's heart, they thought of that phrase, image of God. And they took a razor blade. And they took a scalpel. And they cut off the words, image of. And they threw it away. And they left the noun, God. You will be God in the day you eat of it. And so, tempted and full of lust, they took a bite. It was not simply that they ate a piece of forbidden fruit. It was that in their hearts, there was a coup d'etat. There was an attempt to dethrone God and to deify self. To throw God, to derail Him from His rule and righteous reign. And to set themselves up as the king and queen of the universe. And they bought into it. And Romans 3.23 says, In that moment, something heinous happened. And that that something heinous that happened then, is that something heinous that is still going on this very moment. A fall falling short of the glory of God. Instead of being a reflection of God, man is a refraction of God. A reflection is a mirror image. When you look in the mirror, you see yourself. A refraction is a distorted image. A refraction is when you look at yourself in a spoon. You ever done that? Go home after church, pull out a silver spoon, show your kids a science experiment, and look in it. 
you will look at yourself in the spoon and you will see yourself what? Upside down. That's right. Or how about when you get in the pool? Remember the first time when you're a kid and you're sitting in the hot tub and your legs are in the pool and you look down at your legs and it looks like they're cut off? It looks like your legs are sitting next to you? Or when you get a glass of water and you put a straw in it and you look at the glass and you see the straw coming out and then where it goes into the water, it looks like the straw has been cut in two. That's refraction. And that's what the Bible says you and I have done to the glory of God. Instead of reflecting it, Instead of us reflecting God's glory, His power, His creativity, His morality, and His holiness, we have refracted the glory of God. We have perverted it. We have turned it upside down. So that when people look at man, they see the glory of God as a perversion. And they look at man, and they don't see man as the mistake. They see God as the mistake. And why is God so concerned that we would refract and misrepresent His glory? Well, aren't all of us? Aren't we all concerned with our reputation? Are we not all concerned with what people believe and what people say about us? Why is Barack Obama distancing himself from Pastor Jeremiah Wright? Because to associate yourself with a man who is a racist... Looks bad. Why does other uh, presidential candidate disassociate herself with a woman who made other racist remarks? Because to associate yourself with a racist is a bad idea when you want to be the president. And we all do the same things. We associate with people who proclaim what we want to proclaim about ourselves. We hang on the basketball team because we like being a basketball player. We hang out with the bikers because we want to be a biker. We hang out with the cheerleaders because I don't know why, right? We, but we, we disassociate ourselves with other kinds of people because we don't want to be associated with them. We don't want to associate. We don't want our character. We don't want our name dragged through the mud and dragged through the muck. But that's not even half of what it's like to, to de-glorify God. God is perfect. God is creator. God is righteous. God is just. And we are to be his servants, created in his image. We are to represent him. We are to be ambassadors, reflecting his glory. Instead, we are creatures that falsely represent the creator. We see this perversion in family roles. God intended us to reflect His image when we raise our children. Instead, we refract it when we ignore them or treat them like nuisances. Or perhaps for some who who beat their children. And they reflect the fatherhood of God and pervert it and make God look like an ogre. God intends us to reflect His image when we lead our wives and show them leadership and care. When we nurture them and love them and lead them. But instead, man and husbands, they diffract the glory of God when they pummel their wives and they fail to be understanding with them and they fail to be tender with them and they fail to be caring with them. And they show God as if he was a failure. Or children 
who were meant to reflect God's image by obeying their parents and honoring them and respecting them. Because when a man, when a young boy and a young girl respect their parents, they're reflecting God and they're respecting God. But instead, what do children say in their hearts? My parents are stupid. My parents are old. They don't understand me. I'm wiser than them. And therefore, I will not listen to their rules and I will not allow them to have authority over me. And little children everywhere, every time they sin, reflect, refract the glory of God. We see this refraction and this perversion in the denials of morality. Abortion commandeers God's singular right to determine who lives and dies. Abortion is playing God and pronouncing man as the Lord of life and God as subservient to our morals. Lying slanders God because men seize the truth and pervert it for selfish benefits. Lying places man as the determiner of truth instead of God. Our lust and failure at self-control refracts God as being a God of self-control. It refracts a God with a short circuit and an inability to make a self-controlled man. Pornography takes what is good, that is marital love, and perverts it and defiles God's creative plan for love within marriage. Immorality hijacks marital faithfulness in the name of pleasure and calls it good. And like our image in the spoon, we have flipped the glory of God upside down. Some refract God so heinously that it makes others want to deny God's existence altogether. In the late 90s, Serbia set out in an attempt to annihilate ethnic Albanians in their land. Serbian soldiers took it upon themselves to systematically have their way with the young Albanian women. One woman from Kosovo told the media of an incident in which she and seven other young women were separated from their families and abused by a gang of soldiers. Another young woman from the same village shared how soldiers separated ten women and abused them in front of their own families. The soldiers pinned the fathers down as they sought to fight their ways and rescue their daughters. The soldiers said to them, We are not going to shoot you. We want you to see what we are doing. And we want you to live your lives, the rest of your lives, being unable to forget what you are seeing. The woman concluded her story by saying this. It was then that I came to know that God does not exist. Do you think God is outraged? Do you think God is angered? When men pervert his glory and defile his character? Does God just look down at men in their creative capacity to perversion, to create evil, and simply chalk it up as a mistake? Do you think God looks at the perversion of his glory and says, I'll just give them a second chance? In the U.S., in the U.S., you can take people to court and sue them for all they have for defamation of character. And yet God is supposed to just 
shrug it off, turn his cheek. That young woman from Kosovo who became the pawn of evil men experienced a crisis in that moment of suffering and evil. In that moment, after she asked the following, she asked the following question. If God is all good and God is all sovereign, how can he allow evil to exist in the world? That young Kosovo woman's solution to that problem, her answer to that antinomy was that God must not exist. Because a God who is good and a God who is sovereign would not allow those things to happen to me. But there is a greater ethical dilemma than the problem of good and evil and the existence of God. And that problem is this. Listen closely. If God is all good and God is all sovereign, how can he allow sinners to live? How can God watch the way I defile his glory every minute of every hour of every day and still let me live? How can a hundred men and women sitting in chairs who defile the glory of God day after day after day still be alive? That is the ultimate ethical dilemma. And yet, I take my words back and retract. There is one that is even greater. Look at verse 24. For all have sinned and perverted the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace. Even more preposterous is not just that sinners are still living. Verse 24 says that sinners can be pronounced justified as a gift by His grace. Verse 26, look at verse 26. Look at that phrase where it says, God is both just and the justifier. Romans 4, verse 5 says it even more clearly. It says, God justifies the ungodly. He justifies the ungodly. He pronounces righteous those who are unrighteous. He looks at the guilty. He looks at the vile. He has looked at his enemies. He has looked at those who are hostile to him. And he is pronouncing in his courtroom that sinners are justified. Proverbs 17.5 declares that he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them are an abomination to the Lord. So I ask you, how can God be sovereign? And how can God be good? And how can God be just and yet pronounce you and I righteous? Does anyone care about that dilemma? Does anyone ask? Is anyone shocked by that? It is not righteous to call those who are unrighteous righteous. And let me clarify something very important here. We must grasp at the outset that justification, that the pronouncement of righteous, is not a synonym for amnesty. 
The word amnesty means to pardon people without regard to what they deserve. Amnesty is pardon without principle. The word amnesty comes from the Latin word amnestia, forgetfulness, where we get our word amnesia. Amnesty is when Lydia disobeys daddy for the hundredth time and daddy says, I'm too tired to take care of this. I'm too tired to discipline my daughter. So I just sit there, let her sin, and say, it's okay. Does God have amnesia with sinners? Did God justify sinners because he forgot how they defamed his name? Does he just say, forget it? Just let him into heaven. No, that's amnesty. In December of 2002, United Airlines filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Employees who'd invested hundreds, thousands of dollars into United Airlines stock immediately found out that all their stock was frozen. What was worse is that all their assets, all their stock, it was liquidated. It was used by United Airlines to pay off what debts they could. Stockholders lost everything, and it was declared legal. On top of that, the bankruptcy made it legal for United Air to cancel employee pensions. James and I, on our flight to Russia, we talked for about half an hour with this flight attendant who was, who was working for United. This is where I found out about this. Some of you guys, this is old news. She told us she'd been working for United for 20 years. For 20 years, saving up in this pension. And she lost it all. And the government said, that's legal. Bankruptcy was amnesty for robbers. It brushed their debt under the rug and called it just. Our flight attendant was a bitter lady. She had no problem telling us what she thought of United Airlines. In fact, even more disturbing is the same year this woman lost her pension, the president of United Airlines became the richest airline owner of all. That's amnesty. It looks another's responsibility over and fails to bring to justice others. It's legal amnesia. But God does not provide amnesty for sinners. He provides justification. He pronounces them legally righteous. But how? How does he do so? The answer is in verse 24. He redeems us through the redemption which is in his blood. Redemption means to liberate through payment. In this verse, the payment is the most incredible and infinite cost ever paid. The currency used was Jesus, and the amount of the purchase was his life. The text clearly says that through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, that Jesus, he was the check written to pay for our sins. He was the check that was cut. He was the cost that was paid so that we might be pronounced justified. But more, what does 
we need to look further. How is this transaction accomplished? Verse 25. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Now, that's a big word. So big that, of course, I had to look it up. Look up what it means. I promise you that it's an easy concept. It means to pacify or soothe, particularly to soothe an angry person or an angry God. For many religions, the reasons of their God's anger was not clear to them. But the anger of God was clear to them. They didn't know why he was angry, but they knew he was angry. They looked at all their crops and there was no rain. They looked at the drought and saw that they were going to starve. Or they looked and watched their children come forth stillborn. Or they watched their wives unable to conceive children. And when men and women saw these things, they said, the gods are angry with us. So we must appease his anger. We must propitiate his wrath. And so what do we do? We make idols in the image of that God. And we appease that God by worshiping it. We take our livestock and we sacrifice it to turn away the anger of God. We take all that we have, we take our objects and we burn them on the altar. Or in some cases, they would take their own flesh and blood. They would take their own sons and daughter and they would slay them. And they would offer them up on an altar of of fire to their God to propitiate his wrath. In 2 Kings chapter 3, we read of the story where the Israelites are fighting the Moabites. And the Moabites are losing. They're losing the battle. And they immediately discern that their God, he is angry with them. Why else would they be losing? And so the king, knowing that to save his life and the lives of his troop, he must offer up a very great propitiation. He must offer up a very great sacrifice to appease the wrath of his God. And so he takes his oldest son, who is the next, who is the heir of the throne. He takes his own son and he holds him up on a wall and he spears him through and he sticks him on the wall and he lights him on fire before all of his soldiers to propitiate the wrath of the God of Moab. Every religion of every Man, woman, tribe, tongue, and people and nation is a propitiation. All religion is an attempt of men to bring a sacrifice that will appease God. If I bring my good works, I will appease His anger. If I do these religious things, I will turn away His wrath against me. If I perform religious works, If I go to church, if I read my Bible, if I pray, God will be pleased with me. There are some religions that have taken the gift of Jesus Christ, the gift of God, and they have made it the gift of men. In Catholicism, the priest, he takes the wafer and he, as if it is, pulls Christ down from heaven. And he lays him on the altar every Sunday at the Mass. And all this is symbolic to what they believe is literally happening. That Christ is being slain. 
And the priest, then he takes that wafer, which is the slain body of, of Jesus Christ. And he offers it up to God as a propitiation to justify himself and to justify his congregation. Who propitiates the wrath of God? The priest. Who propitiates the wrath of God? You. But that is a perversion of the gospel. The gospel says we cannot propitiate God's wrath. We cannot turn away his anger. And so God did what religion can't do. God sent his own son. He put his own son on the cross to propitiate his own anger against us. That's how sinners are justified. That's why Paul says, it is a gift of his grace that we're saved through it by faith. That we believe what God has done for us because of what we cannot do for ourselves. And this is why we must pray. God, we have failed to believe that the justification of sinners is the greatest ethical dilemma of all time. For you to pronounce the guilty as righteous has lost its meaning to us. Grant us to fill the fresh breeze of your breath as you blow out the torch of your wrath against us and lit up the flame of indignation upon Christ. One final danger that as a church that we face when we look at the propitiation of God offering up his own son is instead of seeing the cross as a profession of God's love, we see the cross and we see Jesus as a victim stepping in the way of an angry God. There are some today who preach a gospel that says this. Picture a, an angry father abusing his, his son. And a mother in her helplessness jumps in the way as a father delivers the final blow of a baseball bat. And in that moment, as the, as the mom steps in the way, she takes the beating and falls to the ground dead. But the child, he lives. There are some who preach that Jesus, he was a helpless victim. That he was, against his will, sent by the Father, thrown into the midst of the anger of God. But that's not the gospel. The gospel says that Christ, of his own will, went to the cross and died for us. The Father came to the Son. Son, my creation, our creation defiles our image. Men and women slander me and desecrate my good name. I cannot be a just God and simply provide amnesty. I would become as they are, a false judge, turning a blind eye to sin, calling what is evil good and what is good evil. I must, in my righteousness, give them what they deserve. Son, the price of their sins cannot be paid off by them. Not in a million years will they have removed one ounce of their guilt. There is only one way their sin and sentence might be removed. It's you, son. Only you can wash away their sin. Only you can endure my full wrath. Only you can pay the complete price for sin. I desire to send them. I desire to send you to them. I desire to show my love for them. 
To which the son replies, Father, I will go. And in doing so, will show the world your holy righteousness and your infinite love for sinners. They will behold your kindness and severity, Father. They will behold the severity of sin when they see me die. And they will behold the kindness of God when they see me rise. That is why Paul declares in Romans 4.23 that Jesus Christ was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised for our justification. That is Resurrection Sunday. That is what the gospel is about. But we must pray, God, we have forgotten that the cross is the greatest testimony of your love for sinners. The belittling of our sin results in the belittling of your love. For if our sin is small, the cross is small. And if the cross is small, your love is small. Our vision of your love is blurred by our love for self. Grant to us that the blazing center of your love would burn away the clouds from our eyes and that we might feel the warmth of your love again. Finally, how does all this work? Is this universal atonement? Did Jesus die on the cross so that everybody gets into heaven? That anybody can go in, no matter what they believe, no matter how they live? Verse 26 tells us that God is just and the justifier of what? Of who? Of the one who has faith in Jesus. Friends, faith believes important truths. Faith believes that God is creator and that you are created. It believes you should reflect God, but instead have refracted God, defamed Him and defiled Him. Faith believes that you're the sinner, justly deserving the wrath of God. Faith believes that a sinner cannot change himself or better himself or fix himself. He takes God at His word, which says, By the works of the law, no man will be justified. Faith believes sinners are hopelessly lost in sin, but that a supremely sufficient payment was made on the cross. Faith believes our sin is so potent that Christ must pay for it. One sin itself was enough for Christ to die on the cross to to remove it. But our sins are not one, they are endless. Our sins are as vast as the oceans and deeper as the seas. But Christ is so potent that the oceans of sin are dried up in one drop of His blood. We must gasp at these two superpowers. The power of sin and its ability to destroy men, but the power of Christ to save the world by faith in the cross. Friends, all of us have fallen short. All of us have defamed and defiled His glory. You have not merely stumbled or fallen a few feet, but you have infinitely strayed from the intended target of God's glory, and you have done so by no accident, but with clear, conscious effort. The Lord has bent his bow, and he has made it ready. He will take his sword, and with it will slay the wicked, and will wipe them from the face of the earth. The cross is dripped with the blood of his Son. But when the Son returns, His sword will be covered in the blood of men. It is for you to decide the blood-dripping form of the cross upon you or your blood dripping off the sword of Christ. Behold the justice and the love of God. 
He is just and will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. But He is loving, sending His Son to pay your debt. Behold the mercy of Christ, not going to the cross because He was forced, but going to the cross because He willed. Faith believes that Christ takes our sin and gives us His righteousness, and that all is a free gift. Faith is our invisible hand which we extend to the living God. We stretch this hand out to God. It is leprous, covered with sin, covered with iniquities. We stretch this hand out to God with nothing to bargain, with nothing to offer, with nothing to exchange. We simply empty our hands and offer them to God, asking of Him for His righteousness. And for his salvation. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to you for dress. Helpless I look to you for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me Savior or I die. Our final prayer is that of praise. Where we praise God for his grace and his mercy. For his amazing love and sacrifice that we, the guilty one, should go free. Should be pronounced before a God that we have defamed as righteous before a God who loves us. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you, O Lord, for your amazing grace. We thank you for what the cross declares. We thank you that the cross pays for the defamation of your character. And it renews the image of God in us. Lord, those this morning who believe the gospel by faith, that nature which we were born with that defiles your image is now by grace being renewed to that image. You are conforming us to the likeness, to the image of Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, for the cross. We pray this morning that, Lord, you would woo sinners to believe in the merciful propitiation, that merciful gift which you extend to us, that we might be brought to you. Lord, thank you for Christ who was pierced through for our transgressions, who was raised for our justification. We thank you, Lord, for the potency, the power, and the privilege of being called sons and daughters of God. In your name we pray.